with us tonight. If you'll take your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3 tonight, we're going to continue our study of Matthew. We've been uh, kind of last uh, Sunday, not last Sunday because of Easter, but the Sunday before that, uh, during the Sunday school hour, as well as Wednesday night, we kind of went through uh, Matthew chapter 1 and 2, uh, just looking at uh, specific things, not an in-depth survey to the point of verse by verse, but just pulling out some good truth that we see in the book of Matthew. And again, you say, why Matthew? Uh, there's just a lot of good things in it, uh, specifically about the kingdom of God and um, just about uh, God's plan of salvation as well to the Jews as well as to us as Gentiles. And so I just want to encourage you um, with that tonight. We're going to look at some several passages. Uh, we're going to open in verse, let me see here, 2 tonight. We'll just start in verse 1 for sake of context. So Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, I will read some um, verses and then we'll pray and we'll get into the uh, meat of the message here. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Dear Jesus, just thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. I pray, Lord God, that you would just speak to your people. And I pray that we would exalt you, God, and that you would just help us to put you first. We praise you in all things in Jesus' name. Amen. So looking at the kingdom again. I know we're going to kind of pause here again, um, but this thought of the kingdom that was being offered, I really want to exemplify that. And you say, why um, do we have to study this element of the kingdom so in-depth if it was just specifically to the Jews? But it's just more or less the context and totality of Scripture. A lot of people think God's plan is specifically redemptive in its purpose, thinking that it is just to save us from our sins. And that is a very um, good purpose. Paul said this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And so the redemption aspect is definitely part of God's plan. But even aside from that, adjacent to that is his universal reigning program, his, his offering of his universal kingdom um, over mankind and over all creation. And so God kind of has these two programs. And I know that I'm going to, um, this is not as simple as it gets, but what helps me when I approach scripture is to think of it, is God talking about his, his kingdom and his reign, or is he talking specifically about redemption? So reign or redemption. And then you obviously have the two classes of people in Scripture. You have the Jews, then you also have the Gentiles. And so that really helps as we're going through Scripture, trying to rightly divide it, uh, thinking of it in that context. But we're going to turn to a number of verses tonight just to uh, give clarity. And I was thinking about this too because um, when, you, when, when you preach, sometimes you're scared about giving people too many verses to turn to because you think you'll lose their interest. But that's that's scary though. And if that's where your heart is, I would I would I would encourage you to think different because we're commanded to preach the word. And and so we're we're commanded to exemplify the word. And I feel like a lot of times um that's why people have confusion is because we don't preach the word for what it says. It's very easy to take one verse and and to preach out of it because you can get a lot of amens and it sounds really good. And that's good from time to time, but it's definitely eye-opening when you go through Scripture and you connect the dots that God has for us, and it really just makes a lot of sense. And so this kingdom, John says, repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Just to give you a, a recap, God had a large gap from the Old Testament in the book of Malachi to the New Testament where he did not reveal himself through revelation to mankind. And that was a testimony of judgment to the Jews in the Old Testament because they had rebelled against God. They had committed idolatry and fornication and and all those things. And so God um, caused a, a huge gap of, of just not revealing himself to mankind. And then in Matthew, we have the first words. Um, the angel gives the revelation to Mary that she's going to she's gonna give birth to the, the Messiah, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then you got 
you have God offering this kingdom message specifically to the Jews. That message, that revelation was given to the Jew first. And you think of this, this idea of God's kingdom. What kingdom is he talking about? So we're going to look at that uh, tonight specifically. You think about God's reign, and we're going to take it back to the Garden of Eden. But you think about God's reign, and in Scripture we find many verses that talk about God's kingdom. And when you think about that, it has a universal aspect to it, and it also has a worldly aspect to it. And it even has a personal aspect to it because we understand that God has to be king um, of even our hearts. And so throughout Scripture, we understand by testimony of verses that God is in control. And what we'll do tonight by looking at these verses is hopefully encourage you that even in the midst of everything that's going on in the world today, that God still has a program that he's instituted. God still understands that these things are going to come to pass. And so it definitely gives my heart comfort. But thinking about God's kingdom, all right, let's, let's look at some verses here. There is a, a timeless aspect to God's kingdom. If you go to, to Psalms, hold your place in Matthew, but go to Psalms chapter 10, Psalms chapter 10. In verse 16, and we're going to kind of just slowly work through these verses here just to give some context. Psalms chapter 10 in verse 16, it says, The Lord is king forever and ever. The heathen are perished out of his hand. So we understand that God's kingdom, right? He rules and reigns forever. It has an eternal aspect to it. Go with me to Lamentations. Lamentations chapter 5. Lamentations chapter 5. And we're going to look in verse 19, Lamentations 5, 19. You can find Lamentations, it's right after Jeremiah, but my pages are sticking here. Lamentations chapter 5, in verse 19 it says this, Thou, O Lord, remainest forever, thy throne from generation to generation. So we see in God's kingdom, in his reign, that it has a timeless, eternal aspect to it. But next, it also has a universal aspect to it. Go, go back to Psalms chapter 103. Psalms 103, in verse 19, it not only has a timeless aspect to it, but it also has a universal aspect to it. Psalms 103, and we'll look in verse 19 here, 103, 19. It says, The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom ruleth over all. So even in the realms of the world, and we're going to talk about Satan tonight having control over the kingdoms, God still has his omnipotence. He's still ruling. He's still, in essence, in control of everything. If you go to Daniel, go with me to Daniel chapter 4 and verse 17. Daniel chapter 4 and verse 17. This speaking in reference to even Nebuchadnezzar at that time. Daniel chapter 4 verse 17. It says, this matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the most high ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will and setteth up over it the basis of men. So we see that God not only has a timeless eternal aspect to his kingdom, but he also has a universal aspect to his kingdom. He's in control of everything. He sets up kings on the earth. He's sovereign over all. And he even deals through mankind regardless of if they realize it or not. We understand by studying in Exodus with Pharaoh, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh didn't even know that he was being used to exemplify God's power through signs and wonders in Israel. But yet God was still using Pharaoh and even Nebuchadnezzar um, in all his rule and reign as a world power in those who would come after him. God still being in control it has a universal aspect to it. So it's timeless. It's universal. God still retains his power, even though men exert it um, from time to time uh, in, in, in the world as we know it. 
It also has a miraculous aspect to it as we understand that he uses different means of revelation to mankind in his kingdom program. Just as God has different economies of how he relates to us in our salvation, he still has different economies in how he distributes his reign through through this kingdom aspect. So you think about the word of the, the use of this word kingdom, there's two specific ways that it's usually used in scripture, specifically in the New Testament. You'll hear two ways, one being the kingdom of heaven and another being the kingdom of God. And you say, what's the difference? Well, scripturally, it's hard to really find a difference because we see them used in the same uh, aspect, in the same context. In Matthew, you're going to see the word kingdom of heaven utilized the most because as we know, Matthew's purpose of his gospel was to show the Jews that Jesus was their rightful king. And to the Jews specifically, they understood this idea of this heavenly kingdom that was supposed to be given to them. You, you heard the, the, um, the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. All right, We're not praying that prayer. We're not praying for the kingdom. We're not seeking that kingdom first. But to the Jews, that, that was what they were awaiting. So Matthew uses that word to, um, to relate to them, specifically as Jews. But I also want to admonish you that the kingdom of heaven is not the heaven that we as Christians are looking for. God says heaven and earth shall pass away. So one day the heavenlies, that third heaven that Paul even talked about in 2 Corinthians that he went up to, had visions of, that heaven is going to be passed away. The kingdom that God is talking about is a kingdom that will that will be eternally instituted. This, this new Jerusalem, this kingdom of God. And so that's even different in that aspect. So you're going to see that used a lot. And there is a separation even of God's uh, kingdoms as we're going to look here in a second. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14. In verse 12, Isaiah 14 in verse 12. And this is really where it it kind of comes to a head when you think about God's reign. Because he obviously has reign over all. But in the Garden of Eden, there was the deception. Mankind sinned because of Satan's temptation. And when mankind sinned and separated himself from God, two two kingdoms were created. But, But even before that, there was already a division from the kingdom of God and what would be the kingdom of this world. In Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12, it says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which weak this weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, now listen to the, all these I wills that Satan says, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell into the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms? Now you think about that. You think about Satan, and God is going to make a spectacle of Satan when he comes back during the tribulation period, when he destroys Satan and the false prophet and the beast, and he throws them all into the lake of fire. Satan is going to be, Satan's kingdom, his rebellion against God, that kingdom in opposition to God, is going to be made a spectacle to the earth, and he's going to be uh, finally destroyed. But in Satan's rejection of God and his rebellion of God, and we understand that he took angels with him, and in his deception of mankind, there was two kingdoms that were established, and there's the kingdom that God is going to once again institute, as well as the kingdom of this world who Satan has control over. So God in the Garden of Eden is seeking to reconcile mankind back to himself, but he's also through that in his program of redemption He's going to reconcile a kingdom back to where it is going to be, and he's going to rule and reign as he once did um, um, previous to that that specific rebellion. So those are really the two uh, kingdoms um, as we see, and it kind of hopefully gives you some context 
to God's not just redemptive program through Scripture, but also him establishing his rule and reign again through Scripture. We understand that Satan has control specifically of the kingdoms of this world. In Matthew chapter 4, when he tempts Christ, and obviously Christ through the word of God um, is able to defeat Satan in, in the temptation, Satan says, look at all these kingdoms. I'll give you them all if you would just bow down and worship me. And God said, and, and Christ responded that we're only to worship, you know, obviously God and nobody else before him. But even in that, Christ didn't rebuke Satan. He didn't say, Satan, these kingdoms are not in your control. He understood that Satan does have uh, control of those kingdoms specifically now. In, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Satan's known as the God of this world. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says, who in times past you walked according to the course of the world. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. So we understand that Satan in this world has control specifically of the kingdoms. God has given given him that for the time being until, again, at the end, he's going to make uh, Satan the spectacle. In Matthew chapter 25, turn with me to Matthew chapter 25, in verse 34, Matthew 25. In verse 34, it says this, and we'll start reading in verse 31, just to give context, it says, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall he shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, and the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You've read the verse where God says that he was a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So we see God's kingdom program instituted at the beginning, but also his redemption program instituted at the beginning. And Paul even comments on this. If you go to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15 in verse 24, even Paul specifically talks about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 24, I'll um, start reading for sake of time. We'll, we'll read in um, verse 22 again to give context. It says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterwards they that are Christ that is coming, then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. So we understand that God, this is a universal kingdom. He's not just trying to um, reconcile the world through salvation, but he's also going to eventually put all the powers under his feet and destroy the last power, which we understand is death. When God says death and hell are cast into the lake of fire at the end, that program God is still working out um, specifically today. And it's just funny to think about how the earth, the earth is going to be the place where God is going to display this mighty act. This, this end of this play, if you will, um, during that millennial reign. And so we understand that God's intent is not just the redemption of man's heart, but it's to establish a theocratic kingdom. As we see, it was prepared from the foundation of the world, and one day it's going to be delivered back up to God the Father. And so, again, we've talked about the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, that kingdom that God's going to institute, and specifically that was first offered and given uh, to the Jews. And we have not replaced the Jews as the body of Christ. We're a mystery. We're, we, were, we were put in the gap. When, and, we'll, and we'll look at, if we have time, probably not tonight, but we'll look at Romans chapter 11 where we understand that we as Gentiles were grafted in, but Israel is not cast off. God still has a program for his chosen people because God made promises in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel 
And we understand that the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. And so God does not lie. But let's take a quick look, um, and we'll try to hurry because of time, at the different kingdoms right, of the Old Testament. God, God seeking to establish his kingdom. And just like God had different economies, or what we call dispensations, in relation to how mankind obtains atonement for his sin, God also instituted his kingdom in different uh, specific a aspects. In the first one we see, as, as the first theoc theocratic kingdom that was instituted, was in the Garden of Eden. God established creation, right? And God was still sovereign. It was a perfect theocracy. And he gave authority to Adam. In Genesis 1.26, we understand that Adam had dominion over all the creation of the earth. He named the animals. He, he tended the garden. He had delegated authority that was from God specifically. And so we see the first element of God's kingdom program. And even submission to Eve, right? Eve was in submission to Adam, and it was a picture of our submission to Christ as the body of Christ. And it was divinely ordained. But we understand that through the fall, through man's rebellion, God's kingdom program and his reign is, is, is determinative upon man's obedience back to that revelation of God. So when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they were exiled from God's kingdom because God has a righteous kingdom. And in Genesis chapter 3, if you'll go there for sake of time, I know you've probably read this verse a lot, but Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, God gives a prophetical aspect to how he's going to reestablish this rule and reign in Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, he's speaking to Satan, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. And we understand that he was talking about Christ, right? Christ was crucified, but at the same time, one day Satan is going gonna, is gonna to be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. So Christ has the victory there. So God's redemptive program parallels the development of this, this kingdom. And God is going to redeem man and establish again his rightful rule. And he establishes his authority through specifically redemption. Now think about this. In Genesis chapter 4, Eve says, I have gotten a man from the Lord. I have gotten a man from the Lord. And if you think about this, what does that mean? Right? God, God That first Adam, we understand from scripture that that first Adam was a picture of Christ. He was a figure of him that is to come. Adam had rule over all creation. God gave, delegated that authority to him. Just like God delegated the authority to Christ, he's committed all rule, all judgment to Christ. The heathens, he's going to give them the heathens, the, the whole heathen nation and the whole world in creation. But we understand that Adam's sin was exiled from God, but yet God allowed Eve to birth, in essence, another Adam, another man from the Lord. So when Eve birthed, Right, her child, her first son, she, in essence, God was giving mankind and other chance a seed by which he would again establish his rule. It was a very serious thing. And so in, in the Garden of Eden, we see God instituting his first kingdom. Obviously, this didn't end well because in Genesis chapter 6, God says every imagination of man's heart was wicked continually to the point where he had to flood the earth. And the end, as he says in Genesis, the end of all flesh is come. So God destroys the whole world except Noah and the ark. Again, a, a, a future uh, picture of Christ. But he, he, he preserves Noah and his family, and he says he's never going to destroy the earth again with a flood. So that's the first theocratic kingdom was in Eden, in the rule of man after that. But then we see the second theocratic kingdom under human government. Go to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. Genesis chapter 9. In verse 1, this is when um, Noah and his family are preserved. In, in verse 1 it says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. 
in, listen to this, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth and upon all the fishes of the sea. Into your hand are they delivered. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb. I have given you all things, but flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall you not eat. And surely your blood of your lives will I require at the hand of every beast, will I require it. And at the hand of, of man, at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. And if you'll skip down to verse 11, and I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there be any more a flood to destroy the earth. And God obviously put the rainbow in the sky to uh, promise Noah that he wasn't going to destroy it then. But you, you understand how God says prior to that, in essence, in the Garden of Eden, mankind had fellowship with animals. Mankind could have fellowship with a lion and not be worried about getting eaten. Mankind, there wasn't that, that, that human government established yet where even the animals feared mankind because he, he had dominion over them in that sense. So we see God executing his, his kingdom through human government. And that's going to go on until we get to the patriarchs, right? Because God God has has instituted his program of trying to regain the kingdom again through mankind and through the redemption of mankind, but he doesn't yet have a family by which he's going to procure a seed that's going to provide the means of redemption. So what happens? He goes to this guy named Abraham, and in Genesis chapter 12, he makes promises to Abraham that through Abraham's seed, all nations... Not just Israel, but all nations will be blessed. But through that, he still establishes promises specifically to Abraham's family, who we understand is going to be the nation of Israel. So God promises um, through Abraham. And we understand that Christ is the fulfillment of that specific seed. But it starts with Abraham. If you go to Genesis chapter 49, Genesis chapter 49, in verse 10, we see the kingdom program um, related to Abraham as he's giving the blessings to his 12 sons. Genesis chapter 49 in verse 10, it says, as he's speaking to Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. And we understand that prophetically that's talking about Christ, how, he, how the scepter is not going to depart from Judah, right? From the tribe of Judah, and, and Christ is the fulfillment of that. And so it's promised through Abraham's seed, through the, the patriarchs, his 12 sons. It goes through Jacob, it goes through Isaac, it goes through all of them. We understand through that lineage, as you can go to Matthew chapter 1 and trace that lineage, it goes all the way specifically to Christ. And through the nation of Israel, God's going to establish chosen representatives to try to reconcile this kingdom. First, you have Moses, right? God says prophetically Moses was a picture of Christ. And God says when the people murmured against Moses, they murmured against God. Moses was God's divine representative over this kingdom program. After Moses, you had Joshua. And in Joshua chapter 24, he makes that famous statement, choose you this day who you're going to serve. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord, right? And, and Israel turns with Joshua back to Christ, back to God. And then when Israel accepted ownership of Jehovah, then you see the judges come in. And you get to the book of Judges, and God established judges specifically over, over Israel. If you go to Acts chapter 13, I'm going to have to wrap it up here so we have time for prayer. But Acts chapter 13, verse 20, it gives a beautiful picture of this um, kingdom program that God is speaking of. In Acts chapter 13, verse 20, it says this, And after that he gave unto them judges. Now that unto them is speaking about Israel. God gave them judges about the space of 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward they desired a king, and God gave unto them Saul the son of Sis, 
a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony, and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel, unto Israel, a Savior Jesus. And so we understand that God had judges set up. Israel rejected those judges as far as God's establishment of his kingdom. And then God gave them kings, right? After Samuel, God gave them a king. Saul, he put Saul. God chose Saul. And, and this is the scary part. If, if, if the nation of Israel under Saul would have turned fully to God, God would have instituted that kingdom. But they didn't do that. Saul was a perverted king. The nation of Israel didn't, didn't accept the ways of God and he, and he perverted judgment. And through that, the kingdoms fell. You understand the northern tribe split from the southern two tribes and the Assyrians took Israel captive. Then the Babylonians with Nebuchadnezzar came and took Israel captive. And then basically they fell apart in the Old Testament and God could not establish his kingdom. And so it ends in a very kind of bleak, drear note. But then that's when you have in Matthew chapter 3, you have John the Baptist come on the scene and he starts preaching what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because you've had, you've had, Adam and Eve, Noah, the patriarchs, then you've had judges, you've had prophets, you've had kings, and they have all failed. But this time, my king, the one that's going to sit on his, the throne of his father, David, Jesus Christ, is here in the flesh, and he's coming to establish the kingdom. And so next week, Lord willing, or on Sunday morning in, in Sunday school, we're going to talk about what Israel did with that first offer, specifically of that kingdom. And again, God is still going to one day establish that kingdom but right now it's the it's the dispensation of grace praise god for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of ourselves is the gift of god not of works lest any man should boast so i'm going to turn it back over to pastor to go over the prayer request here and thank you so much